The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Dr. John Eichard. He is a professor emeritus of agricultural economics at the University of Missouri in Columbia. He was raised on a small farm and received his BS, MS, and PhD degrees from the University of Missouri. He is an agricultural economist. He worked in the private industry prior to his 30-year academic career, which spanned universities from North Carolina to Oklahoma, University of Georgia, and then finally the University of Missouri. Since retiring in 2000, he spends most of his time writing and speaking internationally on issues around sustainability. Dr. Eichert is the author of six books. He is a prolific author. He has written numerous professional papers. They are all available at johneichert.com, and we'll provide a link to our listeners, as well as faculty.missouri.edu slash Eichert. Again, I'll provide those links. Dr. Eichert was most recently featured in the film Right to Harm about the toxic impact of industrial agriculture on our environment and public health. He also writes an ongoing regular column for the Journal of Agriculture, Food Systems, and Community Development. Welcome, Dr. Eichert. Thank you. Very glad to be here with you today. I think we should first start, since this is a show that connects the dots between food, health, and agriculture, we need to understand where agricultural economics fits. What does an agricultural economist do? Well, agricultural economists look at the economic aspects of agriculture and the food system of general. And we also, when we're looking at that, we look at the context within which agriculture takes place within rural communities. And so we're involved in rural economic development issues, as well as some of the social and cultural issues in rural areas. So we have a pretty broad perspective, but our particular focus is on the economic drivers and the economic constraints of what happens in farming and agriculture and the food systems and rural communities in general. Mm-hmm. Now, you have seen great changes in agriculture, certainly growing up on a dairy farm in southern Missouri, and to what we have today. Back then, of course, there were multiple small farms And then we got the message that farmers had to get big or get out. With all good intentions, we were told that we needed to get big in order to be more efficient. How did that happen? I think from an agricultural economics perspective, it's a very interesting story as to how it came about. During the early part of the last century, coming up through the Great Depression era, it was mainly from small family farms, and the idea when government got involved in the first farm bills in the 1930s and extended into the early 1940s, the idea was is that we needed to provide economic security for the family farmers that were out here on the land so that they could continue to provide food security for the country. And that was the prevailing philosophy in agricultural policy and agricultural economics up until the 1970s. And then we had a fundamental shift in the 1970s, and that's the era that you're talking about. And the change in the idea was is that with new industrial technologies that had come out of World War II, particularly the chemical technologies of the pesticides and the 
munitions technologies of the cheap nitrogen fertilizer and the equipment that we could industrialize agriculture, specialize, standardize, mechanize, consolidate, and we could make agriculture much more efficient, and then we wouldn't have to worry about how many farmers there were. And so the last phase in that industrialization process is to consolidate. Once you specialize, standardize, mechanize, routinize, and now individual farmers could farm more land, produce more cattle, you simplified the management process. And so that's the process that began, and there were economic drivers of that in terms of the increased economic efficiency. But I think one of the most important things that tends to be overlooked, there was a fundamental shift in agricultural policy at that time. And every major agricultural policy since then, in one way or another, has either subsidized or or supported, and in many cases absorbed the risk of this industrial model of agriculture in order to increase the efficiency of agriculture. It was well-intended, but we didn't anticipate all of the negative consequences that I see them that have evolved since then. Yeah, asking what unintended consequences might be and being able to think through changes to see what those consequences might be is really difficult in so many fields. So my question then with regard to efficiency, did we become more efficient? Were we able to produce more food with less inputs? We were able to produce more food with fewer people. And Mm. that's what you do basically with industrialization. You can replace many of the workers with machines and with chemical, biological technologies, things of this nature, it makes it possible then to mechanize, routinize, and control those processes. So you have fewer people there. And then if you consolidate the management, you have fewer managers. And that's typically the way you hear people talk about the efficiency of agriculture is how much more we're able to produce at a lower cost with fewer and fewer farmers. Hmm. But we didn't necessarily increase the efficiency with respect to fossil energy and fossil fuels or mechanization or the industrial inputs or capital. Basically, we substituted capital and technology for the management and labor. Did people want to leave the farms? Well, I'm sure there were some people that wanted to leave the farm because farming in those days did tend to be a lot of drudgery, as I tend to talk about it today, a lot of just muscle labor involved in it. Right. But certainly not everyone wanted to leave the farm. And then after we began to get the early stages of mechanization, it took a lot of that drudgery out. And so while there may have been a voluntary movement of people off the farms into the factories and offices and other places, and that was part of the strategy, too, that when we began industrialization, something like 25-30% of the people were farmers in this country. And so some of those farmers willingly left and got jobs elsewhere. But at some point in here, then particularly as we got into the 70s and into the 80s, These people didn't want to leave their farms, and they didn't leave their farms in many cases until they were forced to just by the increases in production that came about through industrialization caused agricultural commodity prices to drop and drop to the level that the farmers that didn't industrialize, didn't mechanize, didn't specialize, didn't take advantage of the government programs, eventually they were forced out of business. And that happened most notably to most people during the 1980s which I still refer to as the farm financial crisis when farmers were losing their farms through bankruptcy and foreclosures and many farmers committed suicide. We have these periodic times. Some are just worse than others. We're going through a similar time now, particularly in the dairy industry. 
Right. Where the last of the independent dairy farmers are being squeezed out by the final stage of industrialization of milk production. Right. We know, Dr. Eichert, I like to pay attention to the kind of messages that we get about food and agriculture. Too many talks I hear begin with, oh my gosh, look at the population. We've got to produce more. We've got to double our production, say, by 2050. And we only can do that by this quote-unquote modern method of farming. What do you say to that message? Well, there's several issues or fallacies that are involved in what we're talking about here is that part of this messaging is coming out of the growing realization of what we talked about, the unintended consequences a while ago, the unintended social, ecological, uh, food safety, public health issues that are associated with industrial agriculture. Maybe we didn't anticipate those, but we've had several decades where it's been pretty obvious that that's the direction we're going. And so the industrial agriculture people now, including the large corporations, are on the defensive. They've got to have some way now to continue to justify this continued industrialization of agriculture in the face of of growing public awareness of the major negative ecological, social, and even rural economic consequences of what we've done. And so that's the message they're putting out. The reality is, is that we've had consistent surpluses of agricultural commodities during this whole period that we've been talking about having the increased production. And milk is an ideal example of what I'm talking about. We've had surpluses in milk and dairy production periodically. You still were industrializing it. But the idea that we have to increase production to feed the world just doesn't make any sense at all. First of all, United Nations studies, and there's numerous global studies that have been done, indicate that 70 to 80 percent of the people in the world today get their food not from the industrial food system or agricultural system, but from smaller independent family farms, many of which, if not most of those, we would call subsistence farms. And then also the global research indicates, and it's the predominance of this, that through processes such as permaculture and nature farming, agroecology is kind of the umbrella we're working with nature on regenerative, sustainable systems that we could double or triple the yields on those farms without employing any of the industrial technologies or methods. Just simply using good farming practices of rebuilding the natural fertility of the soil and integrating crop and livestock systems to increase the productivity, multiple cropping systems, crop rotations to restore fertility to the soil, various things of this nature. So the rest of the world could easily, if they had the help and just the information, to so that this information was widespread around the world, they could feed the rest of us without industrial agriculture. And the, the other thing that makes it such a fallacy is while we're talking about scarcity and having the increased production and how we're going to eliminate hunger, we've been burning up 40% of the U.S. corn crop in our cars by turning it into ethanol. At the same time, that we have rising food insecurity in this country with about one out of six of our children in this country living in food insecure homes, meaning they don't know that they're going to have enough to eat. But again, as an economist, when you look at the market situation is how we allocate what's produced, it goes to those of us that can demand fuel for our automobiles and we can pay more for that corn crop than the poor people can pay for it for food. And then when we talk about feeding people in this country and domestic food security, we're exporting about 20% of the food that we produce in this country rather than feeding to people here about 
30% of the farm income comes from agricultural exports. This isn't about food security. It's about the economic bottom line of the large farming operations, the large agricultural operations, and specifically the economic bottom line of the large agribusiness corporations that increasingly control the whole agricultural system from food all back through processing distribution back to the farming level. Hmm. Dr. Eichert, let me take one moment and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Dr. John Eichert. He is a professor emeritus of agricultural economics at the University of Missouri, Columbia. Well, I want to talk about another cost that might not be discussed in agriculture schools, but I think it would be so nice if we got out of our silos and if agriculture students could meet with nutrition and public health students as well as medical school students so that we could understand how we produce our food might impact food and health. And I am very concerned with industrial agriculture, and I was really disappointed to see university agricultural economists actually testify in my capital in favor of a bill that would help promote the expansion of confined animal feeding operations. I know through the public health community, of course, that confined animal feeding operations are very dangerous. They harm our water quality. They harm our air quality. They really are not good for rural populations, especially children's health increases rates of asthma as well as antibiotic resistance. So I want to talk about that level of economic harm that comes from these confined animal feeding operations and why on earth would an agricultural economist that is affiliated with a land-grant institution speak in favor of a confined animal feeding operation? Well, again, I think they're looking narrowly within the discipline of economics and are not looking at the negative ecological, social, public health consequences. Because as you indicate, the scientific information is strong that validate and confirm the health risk that you've named here. But if you're simply looking at it from the standpoint of economics, then what they're looking at, again, is kind of the industrial model. And their mindset is is that the industrial model is, by very nature, is the most efficient system and CAFOs or factory farms, large confinement animal feeding operations are kind of the epitome of industrial agriculture. So basically what they're doing is they're reflecting this institutional mindset, this academic mindset from the standpoint of purely bottom line agricultural economics, I would say pure economics, then they'd say, well, this is the most efficient way of doing it. And so we've got to just do this most efficient way that they have in their mind that The thing is, is we've gotten to the point now where with all of those negative side effects that need to be covered up and so people don't believe them or aren't aware of them or things of this nature, we've gotten to the point now where there's very little, if any, economic benefit to be gained by further industrializing agriculture, including these large confinement operations. The primary advantage of the large confinement operations today is not that they can produce necessarily at a lower cost. They may be able to produce at a slightly lower cost than than independent producers in some operations anyway. But the advantage is that the given individual manager can produce huge numbers of hogs by just hiring a few low-skilled employees at basically minimum wage jobs to, to carry out those activities in those farming operations. And so it's mainly just this preoccupation with this purely economic efficiency 
And we believe, it's become uh, a belief more than a fact that industrial agriculture is more efficient. And the other thing is, is that industrial agriculture and CAFOs are still supported by government programs. You talk about CAFOs or factory farms being a way for young farmers or young people to stay on their farms. And basically what they're talking about is if you want to start a CAFO, then you can get the contractor, the corporation that you're going to be contracting with after you borrow the money to build the building. We'll go down to the banker with you and say, okay, we're going to give this person a contract. We're going to pay out here, and they've already got all the projections made of how they're going to make the payments on the loan. And then the government then will guarantee 80 to 90% of that loan, maybe a million, a million and a half dollars that you can go down to the bank and just borrow and get into. So they say, well, this is got to be the future of agriculture. The government's subsidizing these kind of operations. They make sense from an economic standpoint. And they're not looking beyond to the environmental consequences, the impacts on rural communities, the impacts on public health that they talked about. And this is the, the fundamental problem within our university systems today is they talk about siloing, but this is myopic, narrow disciplinary view. See, I got involved in sustainable agriculture issues back in the late 1980s when I became disenchanted with this industrial model of agriculture. I could see even in the 1980s the damages that we were talking about to rural communities that were driving family farmers off the farm, that we were polluting the air and water. And so I got involved in sustainable agriculture. Well, you can't be an agricultural economist dealing in sustainable agriculture unless you know something about ecological issues, environmental issues, social issues, ethical issues, public health issues. You've got to be able to realize the consequences of what you're doing economically, what the consequences are on the whole of nature and on the whole of your community and society and the future of humanity. And I think we're at a point in time where we're seriously being threatened by the narrow view that scientists take without looking at the potential negative consequences or the known negative consequences of the things that we're promoting or they're promoting from a strictly narrow disciplinary viewpoint. Mm -hmm. And certainly sustainable agriculture, what sets it apart, as I understand it, is that it's like that three-legged stool. So you do have economics on one leg, but you've also got the environment and then the social impact on the other legs. So you're looking at the whole system, which I think is a lot more holistic and leads to a more improved quality of life in a rural community. And the real logic of that, when we talk about sustainability, there's a lot of definitions out here, but people, those of us that take it seriously, it's about meeting the needs of the present without diminishing opportunities for the future. You have to be able to do that if you're going to have a sustainable food system, a sustainable society. And when you approach it from that perspective, you come to the realization that everything of use to humans, including everything of economic value, food, clothing, housing, whatever, initially comes from the earth. It comes from nature. It comes from natural ecosystems. And beyond self-sufficiency, just going out into nature and meeting our own needs, we have to meet our needs by relating to other people. We can relate to other people within communities or in families or whatever. They, then we begin to kind of specialize and do particular things, but we trade with other people. We have reciprocity or barter or whatever. So we have to meet our needs from nature through society, and then the economy is simply a means by which we meet our needs impersonally. When the situation or society becomes so complex that we can't meet all of our needs 
or don't want to be restricted to meeting all of our needs through personal relationships, then economies are means by which we can meet our needs by buying and selling impersonal relationships so that we don't have to specifically know the person that made whatever we're buying or they don't have to know that we made whatever they're buying or whatever they're getting from us. And so if you're going to have a sustainable society, a complex society, you have to have a sustainable economy, you have to have a sustainable society, and you have to have a sustainable natural ecosystem. Otherwise, you can't sustain the economy, you can't sustain humanity. So that's the common sense. If you're going to deal with sustainability, you may have a a particular disciplinary specialty like I do in economics and agricultural economics, but you've got to understand enough about the natural ecosystem from which the economic resources are taken, and you have to understand enough about the society within which the economy functions as well as understanding how the economy works and if you're going to deal with sustainability of agriculture or anything else. And I think that's the direction we have to go. We have to have a more holistic approach to our science. And although we may emphasize one particular thing, we've got to have an understanding of the whole with which we're functioning. And I would say we have to have an understanding that economics is simply the means by which we meet our needs. It's not the end. It's not what we're trying to achieve that there has to be some greater purpose to what we're doing. And if we don't know why we're trying to improve the economic efficiency of something, and if we don't keep our mind on what we're trying to achieve by what our so-called economic progress, then we end up and go in the opposite direction. And I think that's what's happened in agriculture, is that we've become preoccupied with simple increased productivity, increased economic efficiency, and we've forgotten the reason that we wanted to do that. We wanted to do that to provide food security, to provide opportunities for farmers, to build strong rural communities, and to build a strong society, and to have a sustainable food system and a sustainable society. And our preoccupation with economics has led us to the point where that pursuit of economics is the greatest threat to all the things that we were trying to achieve. Absolutely. And you have been traveling, you've been on panels related to the Right to Harm film. And I wonder, what kinds of ideas are you seeing that would give us some hope? And what kind of feedback have you gotten from audiences with regard to this film? Well, I think there's a real transformation going on within society from the standpoint of hope. I think there's a broader understanding. I'm not all that intelligent or so bright that I'm thinking way ahead of other people. You know, if I was the only one that was thinking this way, I'd just stay at home and shut up, you know. But there's a lot of people that are beginning to think differently, and a lot of those include farmers. And the Right to Harm film, I was kind of start with them, but the Right to Harm documentary ends up with examples of people that are farming in fundamentally different ways. Gunthrop Family Farms, Greg Gunthrop over in northern Indiana, He's got a poultry operation that's about 30,000 chickens out during the summer, and he's got about 2,500 hogs that he produces a year, produces a year-round. And he also has ducks and turkeys and some other things on the farm there. He produces about a million pounds of meat a year, which is no small niche operation, but everything is outside. Everything is on pasture. Everything is on humane conditions. And so there's people that are doing things differently, and they're doing it the small-scale farmers are important, as I mentioned before. That's what feeds most of the people, and the small-scale farmers in this country are very important. But it's also important that we have a vision of something that's fundamentally different that can, in fact, meet the needs of all the people. But what I hear and what the focus of the Right to Harm documentary is about 
it goes beyond simply the negative environmental impacts of confined animal feeding operations, which I think have been well documented. And there's been a, a lot of emphasis on the negative animal welfare issues, the inhumane treatment, and both of those are tremendously important in terms of air quality, water quality, and so on. But this documentary goes beyond and shows how those air quality or air pollution, water pollution, are public health issues. It's really destroying the water supply, destroying the health of people out in rural communities that live around these operations. And it shows people in five different states that are negatively impacted when CAFOs come in next to them. And several of them have been driven out of their homes. And I hear that story over and over again, how they've been driven out of their homes by a hog operation moving in next to them or a family farming operation next to them all of a sudden decides they're going to expand and put in 5,000 hogs or something and totally changes the overall environment. And I think one of the most important aspects of it is it brings home the fact that it focuses on that industrial agriculture, the large corporate contracting operations primarily that are most of these large confinement operations are under contract to these corporations, are basically using the right-to-farm laws in these various states. Every state has some kind of right-to-farm law. Some are more strict than others. And basically what it does, it exempts agriculture from all of the regulations that would be in place if these big operations were emitting, uh, disposing of a similar amount of biological waste or emitting the same kind of toxic chemicals into the environment from any factory they would be regulated far differently, and they would be subject to nuisance suits by their neighbors for doing that and lawsuits. And what these right-to-farm laws do is go beyond just simply the very lax regulations, if they exist at all in some states of the large confinement operations, to exempting these operations basically from any realistic possibility they're going to be sued for nuisance suits when they drive people out of their homes or destroy their health or destroy their overall quality of life. You know, these are the stories that I hear reinforced by people that are in the audiences. And on the other hand, you have a whole group of people that are kind of the defenders of industrial agriculture, and they're being fed a whole line of propaganda, not only by the large commodity organizations in the American Farm Bureau Federation and other promoters of industrial agriculture, but also a number of different front groups that have been developed to basically try to deny all of the things that we're hearing from the people whose lives are being impacted by these large confinement animal feeding operations. And so we're developing a divide out here in rural communities between the people that know the very real negative impacts of large confinement animal feeding operations and the other people who are listening to the propaganda, you know, and may have real strong beliefs that all that matters in agriculture is the economic bottom line. We're developing a real strong divide, I think, a real dangerous divide in rural communities by the people that are negatively impacted by industrial agriculture, the public health, their basic human rights to clean air, clean water, safe wholesome food, and the people who are still defending the industrial agriculture model. Well, Dr. Eichard, we're going to have to end it on that note. I'd like to just end with one thing, that people tend to get frustrated sometime and they think the situation is hopeless, but I believe that we each have something important to do that can help make the world a better place. We need to make ourselves aware and inform ourselves on the negative, but we need to look for the things that we feel in our heart, what our passion is, what we really need to do to help contribute to a better quality of life and a better future for humanity. Thank you.
I agree. In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. John Eichard, Professor Emeritus of Agricultural Economics from the University of Missouri-Columbia. He is based in Fairfield, Iowa. Thank you, Dr. Eichard. Thank you. Thank you.